Well, I think most of us would agree that self-control is good. Uh, We have all experienced times when we just didn't have quite enough of it, uh, where we didn't just say no, where we didn't wait to find out how many licks it would take to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop, or where we couldn't eat just one, but it turned into one bag or maybe more. Uh, But studies are showing that while self-control and willpower are prized, and always have been really in Western culture, uh, that they aren't easily possessed. It's not easy to have self-control. Strategies are given to those who seek remedies in these areas. I'm sure you've initiated many of them yourself, even if you didn't know the official titles. Uh, But uh, some of the strategies are you should fabricate disadvantage if you want to implement self-control. So you tell yourself things like, I can't afford to do this if I keep doing this, if I keep, you know, drinking like this or smoking like this or, you know, etc. It'll impoverish me. Uh, Or, you know, it's, it's just too much trouble to keep up this particular habit. And so we try to fabricate how it's disadvantaging us and then hopefully the result will be we resist temptation. Or another popular one is you introduce fear. Uh, you tell yourself that it's going to kill you. It's really hard with this one, though, because, you know, well, people say cigarettes may kill you. You know, they don't kill you in the first pack. Uh, and so after a while, fear begins to be a tough motivator. You know, well, diabetes runs in my family uh, or whatever. But we try to induce fear sufficient to then say, I'm going to stop this or that particular vice. Interestingly enough, they say another strategy is to take care of yourself. And the reason for this, I think, is fascinating because they say self-control is exhausting. In fact, studies have shown that self-control makes you more irritable and angry when you exercise it uh, because of the energy expended and the things that are denied in the process of it. And so they say a good strategy is to make sure you're well-rested and well-fed so that all that exhaustion that's going to be exerted while you're trying to express self-control doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't take over, uh, so prep for it so you don't get overwhelmed. But what is interesting is that the studies do bear out that those with the highest level of apparent self-control or apparent uh, um, uh, uh, willpower really don't have it in the way that we think. Meaning... Uh, very rarely is the one who resists the temptation of eating chocolate at midnight someone who's doing it because they're just gritting their teeth and overcoming the temptation. They typically do it because they don't like chocolate that much or they prefer uh, the feeling that they get from eating vegetables. You know, the one who exercises a lot is rarely the one who says, I despise exercise, but I know it's good for me. It's the one who, for whatever reason, enjoys exercise. So they begin to see and through these studies that, well, that's not really self-control. If you delight in the thing, it's awful hard to consider it some form of you know, self-mastery where the person who really hates those things has to really you know, overcome all of these barriers in order to either resist the chocolate or get himself up early in the morning to exercise. You see, what does it mean to truly have self-control, and what does it mean for us as Christians? Because I would say that, again, the world 
has its own version of this, and the question is, is it the same as ours? Is it the same thing that the Bible talks about, or is there a different thing at stake? And how do we go about getting this seemingly elusive fruit of the Spirit? Well, let's begin with a definition. We want to define it, we want to see the dilemma, and then hopefully uh, we will also see uh, God's particular way of doing these things. What does the word mean? It seems, at least at first blush, to be obvious enough. It's a, world, though, it's a word, though, that is seldom used in the New Testament. We may use it a lot, uh, but uh, Paul and, the, uh, and, and Peter and uh, the author of the Gospels use it a total of four times in the entirety of the New Testament. Three of those times it comes in a list, like this, right? Gentleness, compassion, or, you know, uh, gentleness and self-control. Well, the problem with a list is you don't have any context to give the meaning of the word in its kind of fullest form. So how do we learn about the other words in the fruit of the, uh, that are listed in the fruit of the Spirit? Well, how those words are used elsewhere in particular contexts. But you don't have a context. All you have, again, is a list where these items are given to us one by one. So we have to look, or at least people have, looked outside resources, Greek resources outside of the Scripture, to kind of get a handle on well, what did the word mean when it was found in the Greek in other uh, uh, um, uh, literature. And it typically means what we would imagine it to mean, to restrain oneself or to keep oneself under control. Usually in reference to sensual desires, things like sexuality and drunkenness, the, the, the things at the end of the list of the works of the flesh, right, uh, sensuality and orgies and so forth. But it's also used not merely in reference to sensual desires, but also one who's able to manage his emotions, to control his emotions. One who makes temperate and prudent use of his passions. Uh, he keeps himself sufficiently under control so he can do the right thing at the right time and so forth. And so you'll see, for instance, in the King James Version, that this isn't translated self-control, but instead it's translated as temperance, a word that has more to do with, again, the proper use of the proper emotion at the proper time, more so than just merely restraint. Its opposites are often things like gluttony, drunkenness, uh, orgies, and the like, but biblically, it speaks beyond just the sensual desires and talks about the ability to rein in one's fear, one's emotions, one's speech. Not just, again, sensual things, but the most basic things. Uh, you know, one who has self-control doesn't speak in a certain way, doesn't uh, uh, let a certain amount of information out, or doesn't let his emotions out in particular ways. So while sins of appetite require self-control, and that's usually what we think of, we think of, you know, uh, in our dieting culture, we think of, well, don't eat too much, don't drink too much, and that's very true. The Bible does speak about that sort of moderation and temperance. But it also speaks about enmity and strife and jealousy. It speaks about gossip and slander and quarrels and dissensions. And Paul would say you need just as much self-control to not partake of those things and to manage yourself rightly in those moments as you do in these other sensual pleasures. I mean, in our culture, there's this kind of uh, uh, bravado where it's almost looked at like a virtue, where, you know, I just speak my mind. And Paul would say, well, no, you just have no self-control. 
that it's not good to say everything that's on your mind at all times. That is simply an inability to control uh, your mouth and to say the right word at the right time. Even our Proverbs, uh, our, the proverb that we read today, if you go earlier in the chapter, right? Uh, a word spoken at the right time, a fitting word, a uh, word spoken at a fitting time is like, you know, apples of gold and settings of silver. So, again, having control over your speech. Or we say things like, well, you know, I'm just someone... Uh, who doesn't like to bottle up your emotions because you know how unhealthy that is. We all get ulcers and cancer and whatnot from it. Uh, and so I just let everything out. I explode when I need to. I, uh, and Paul would say, no, that, that's sinful as well. There are times where it's best to keep your emotions in. It's best to restrain yourself and so forth. At the end of the proverb this morning, we heard this verse, like a city without walls is one who lacks self-control. Uh, if you look at all the lists of virtues, both in the Bible and outside of Scripture, self-control or temperance is often thought of as the chief because in order to uh, function in any of the virtues, you have to have the ability to act at the right time in the right way, to restrain yourself at the right time and in the right way also. And that proverb is saying the one who has no self-control is like a city who has no defenses. Enemies just come in and plunder and do what they will. They, you know, uh, everyone has their way with you. And when we don't have self-control, that's what also takes place, right? Whatever events come up, we have no ability to manage to do the right thing at the right time because we have no self-restraint. So it's good, I think we would all agree, to have self-mastery. But if that's the definition, and I'm going to argue with that here in a second... You'll notice the dilemma. Uh, it poses a dilemma for several reasons. Hopefully you feel some of them. Some of them are, uh, are emotive or personal, and some of them are theological. But if, there, uh, if these are the fruit of the Spirit, it's pretty odd that the final fruit of the Spirit seems to be self-mastering the self, uh, if that's how we're defining self-control. I mean, it... Heck, if we could do that, we wouldn't be in the predicament we're in, right? Uh, if self-control was something that we had mastered, then we wouldn't have to hear about all these other things from Paul. We would do the right thing at the right time. But of course, Christ had to die because there's something wrong with our ability to control ourselves. When we hear in our language self-control, it sounds as if it is the self doing the controlling. So notice, we are the source of the restraint. We're the ones restraining, but we're also the subject of restraint. So we're grabbing hold of us, and we're keeping us from doing this or that vice. But if I'm the problem, it'd be awfully odd if I'm also the solution to the problem. If Paul merely is speaking about self-control in the way that we normally think of it. And, of course, this is a dilemma we're all familiar with. You may not name it this way, but this is the dilemma of the divided self. Uh, you know, there's the you who wants to lose weight, and then there's the you who really loves ice cream. You know, there's the you who, who wants to begin new disciplines, but there's also the you that really likes to see what's on Netflix. Uh, you know, that whole reality of the, you know, let's set a new goal for the year, realizing... Man, it's been 50 years, and I've never done this. I wonder what's going to be new about me this year, that it's going to all change from this point on. 
We all have that dilemma of our mind having a particular uh, uh, um, aspiration, and yet our desire and will being unable to live up to that which we have aspired. And if, like the Greeks taught, self-control is the rational mind dominating all of our lower passions, it feels like we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, because human nature has shown time and time again it's our lower passions that often dominate our mind, which is why we always have the best reasons for doing really stupid things or sinful things, right? We always have an excuse for why we did what we wanted, even if it's obvious to everyone how foolish it was. Our minds say one thing, I'm going to be, you know, a more patient person, uh, and then our bodies and wills at times do another. As one author writes, I'm dismayed by the amount of deep thought that goes on in my brain compared to the lame output that results. I think about Aristotle's different types of love, and then I go spend $10 on a taco. I form a mental opinion of the Women's March and its implications for future generations, and then I promptly open Instagram to watch videos of baby ducks. We experience a disconnect that we don't even realize. Our minds lie in one place, our bodies and actions in another, and the earth is splitting even right before our feet, and we're just trying to keep footing on both sides without ever looking down. I mean, so if Aristotle is right, if the Greeks are right, that the mind controls the lower passions, this person is saying, like, well, it's not working for me because my mind may be on high and lofty things, but oftentimes my, my actual living is, you know, in those same repeated patterns that I've had for some time. And to hear the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, while needful, and I think most of us would want it, it sounds uh, needful, it's hardly helpful. Because not only can I fully control myself, according to Scripture, I can't even fully know myself in order to do so. I mean, the fact is, if it was just a matter of saying no, we would have said no already. Wouldn't we? I mean, don't we want to stop doing certain things? I mean, at one real level, we want to be done with particular sins, and yet, here we are. We, we can confess that confession every week and never have it be a lie. Isn't that a, both a, an odd and yet uh, discouraging and hopefully comforting reality? That those things will always be true of us. In fact, if we could have just said no and it would have been done with it already, Paul would have not made this whole argument in the book of Galatians to say the way of the law does not work. And if you keep going that way, it's only going to condemn you. He would have just simply said, well, there's the law, control yourself and go do it. But instead, he's gone a different route. So if the definition is one thing and the dilemma is another, let's notice for, with Paul what the difference is. There may be a better way to translate this word. I think the King James does a fine job with temperance, but it really does mean something like inner strength or fortitude, some form of vigor. So it's not merely a matter of holding something back, trying to control something this direction, but it really is about power and about, again, a certain amount of vitality. It's on the, it focuses on the presence of something, a particular power, again, or life, not on the absence of something. I'm just merely restraining. 
When we associate self, uh, when we think of self-control, we often think of it merely in terms of resisting temptation. I'm not going to do that thing again. And while resistance is good, I think most of you have a track record that would show it's not nearly enough. I mean, how many things have you tried to keep yourself from committing this or that particular sin? I mean, how is it? I've pastored a long time, and you can put a lot of safeties on computers, for instance, and people get around them. Uh, You can do a lot of self-management, like, I'm just not going to buy junk food. Uh, And that's fine, but the reason you don't buy it is because you're admitting you have no self-control, and that's why it can't be in the house. I mean, we have one member of the family that if desserts get left around, they get thrown in the trash, much to the dismay of many other people in the household. Uh, But it's this person's way of saying... I'd just rather not have the temptation. It's so much easier to be done with it. But we can try to set all of these, again, uh, motives of like, well, I'm just going to scare myself out of it, or I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to put things in place that will keep me from it. And those things aren't bad. There are times, for instance, when you know you have no self-control, that you do need to put yourself in a situation of safety. But that's hardly the fruit of the Spirit. If these are the Spirit's fruit, the Spirit's Power is not merely saying, well, I'm going to try to keep myself from anything bad, and therefore I'll be able to resist. We need instead a presence and a power, not merely an absence or an avoidance. And Paul has been teaching us, whether we've heard it or not, that is exactly what we do have. Paul's overall argument is obvious in Galatians, that it is the works of the flesh or it is ultimately the fruit and the gift of the Spirit. These are the Spirit's fruit. So notice the locus of agency or the power here is sourced in the Holy Spirit, not in us, first and foremost. Whatever he means by self-control, it doesn't begin and end with you. It begins as the power source in the Spirit himself, and ultimately is granted to you. It is not the human self. It's the Spirit working in intimate relation with you in your human self. While self-mastery is a human achievement, when we think of what Paul is talking about, he is talking about a work of grace, a divine gift, something that is given from the outside and worked in us by a power that is not our own. It is ours to receive. It is not ours to generate. You see, it's not mere self-power. It is divine fruit. Uh, Maybe you know the old practice of usufruct, uh, the legal right in certain communities to both uh, use and enjoy the fruit of another man's field. Uh, It's this communal right. It's not yours by ownership, but there is uh, this civil uh, rule that uh, is made, and other people get to enjoy the benefits of a farmer's field. Well, that's what Paul is saying, that that this self-control, this inner strength, it's not yours, but God is giving you divine right and divine access to it because it's his power of control. Abide in me, Christ says and I in you, and what will happen? And you will bear much fruit. 
Or as he says in Galatians, if we are led by the Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, we are controlled by the Spirit. Listen to what he's told us already in Galatians, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit himself is the one that challenges us and even gets us to acknowledge that we have sin. We are sustained by the Holy Spirit. We are strengthened by the very Spirit of God. And in one sense, we lose to self. I mean, that's one of the jobs the law has, according to Paul, is saying you need to quit having any confidence in the self. If the law has taught you anything, you're bad at self-control. What Paul would encourage us to do instead is to say, forget yourself and look to and depend on a spirit, the spirit who is outside of yourself, the spirit's power, and allow it to give you an inner strength you do not possess on your own. Well, that's really, uh, well, let me say that in a moment. Paul would say to us that we are to live in the Spirit. This is not a rational willpower issue, according to Paul. Not just change your mind about what you want to do, and then things will change. Or commit yourself to this task, and then you will accomplish it. But rather, it is a strength that you need that is not from you, but is given to you by God himself. And we dwell in the realm of that strength. God himself dwells in you. You are in him and he is in you, that you have God himself at the ready in your life. So our inner strength isn't merely our or at first, merely our vigor. It's not us gritting our teeth or clenching our fists, but it, rather it's an opening of our hands and asking and seeking and desiring for God to empower us with a strength that is not our own. It's the Spirit strength in and through us, a participation in His power, His vitality, His vigor. And that all sounds good, but also just sounds like a bunch of spiritual mumbo-jumbo. I mean, how does that work? What does it mean that we live in the Spirit? And how does that help me, you know, tomorrow when I'm tempted with this or that, or when I want to keep on, you know, speaking ill of others and so forth? I mean, we are, according to Paul, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. And I think for a lot of us, that's how this is supposed to work. You know, here's how you're going to get self-control. Say no to the bad stuff and yes to God. I mean, that's how a lot of us have parented. Uh, and it's worked perfectly. Our kids are all perfect and no one does anything wrong. Uh, you know, that's how we often treat other people, right? I don't know why you keep doing that. Just stop doing that and do this instead. But with our own selves, we realize it's just not that simple. But that is a Bible verse. Paul says, say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And if that's all Paul had said, then I could just tell you to do this and move on. But how? How does he say that this works? How do we stay connected to the Spirit's power and have it as a source of strength for us so that we can not only resist temptation but pursue the good? Well, before Paul says, say no, he says this. The grace of God has appeared. 
that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God appeared. Now, again, he's not talking about a theory or or a theological term appeared. He's talking about the person of his son appeared and lived and died and rose on your behalf. And he says, and that grace displayed in the giving of his son, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness while we wait in hope, he says, to see Jesus. That's what he goes on to say. We wait in this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God teaches us. And in particular, Paul is speaking about the grace that brings us salvation, the grace presented and offered in the gospel itself. Christ for you. He says, Christ for you in salvation teaches you to say no to ungodliness. That seems like a very weird connection. I mean, when you want someone to do the right thing, do you say, you know what it is that's going to get you to do this? God's free gift to sinners who can't get it right. That's going to teach you to say no to ungodliness. But that's exactly what Paul says. A gospel that displays his grace offers it to us freely and also unites us to him by the power of the Spirit. You see, resistance isn't enough. Your life has already showed you that. What you need is power, and you don't have any. (laughs) And yet, God gives it to you when you look to his Son, behold him as altogether lovely. You see, What you need to overcome temptation, as we saw at the beginning of this study, who are the most self-controlled people uh, in the studies that were shown? Well, people who love to exercise happen to be self-disciplined enough to exercise. People who love to eat vegetables happen to have the best diet. Notice, they love certain things, and therefore they do those things. And we used to love some other things, and therefore we do those. Like, you know, we love chocolate cake, and so then we eat that. Uh, But Paul says, you know what's going to help you say no to ungodliness? Is loving something more. And the thing that's going to convince you to love something more is to realize that the grace of God has appeared to you in Christ Jesus and he gave you what you needed even before you asked for it, even before you performed it, and even in the midst of all of your failings. In your utter lack of self-control, Christ is there for you in mercy. And he says, if you can see that, that will genuinely teach you to say no to ungodliness. Well, let's look at how that works. I mean, if you need to love something more in order to do that instead of other things, how is, the love, how is love for Jesus born? Where is Christ most lovely to you? Where are you, you know, as you look in your life, when have you been willing to say to God, I'll do anything for you? Has it been after you got, you know, caught blowing it again and he, you know, spanked you? It's when you've blown it and you've seen that Christ's mercy is still held out to you and God says to you, I love you still. And in that mercy and in that grace displayed to us, our hearts are turned to him again, right? And we say, if you love me in the midst of all my failing, what can I do for you? You'll notice it's the gospel that displays his goodness that 
inflames our love for God. And our love for God is what inflames our desires to do the right thing. It's not our biting our nails and saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's our looking to Jesus and saying, see how lovely the Savior is, how good he's been to me. As the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And then what happens? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. It's what one theologian, Thomas Chalmers, has called the expulsive power of a new affection. How do you get over doing the wrong thing? Well, a stronger power and a greater love comes, and all of a sudden those things don't have the attraction they used to. It's not merely by saying, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, but rather, this is so much better. I love this, therefore I don't need to or want to do that. I mean, there's two ways to fight temptation. There's two ways to control yourself. Uh, You know, Homer got it. Uh, uh, At least he got part of it. Uh, And then uh, we'll we'll see who got the other part. You'll remember in uh, the Odyssey, the the song of the sirens, you know, pretty famous. Maybe you don't know it from the Odyssey. Maybe you just know it from, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But uh, in the Odyssey, there's, you know, the half bird, half woman, uh, and these two sing this beautiful song that is so alluring, so tempting, that it draws the sailors towards it, but also as it draws it toward the voice, they're drawn to these two dangerous rocks that often shatter the ships and destroy uh, those who are sailing. And knowing this was coming, Odysseus was advised uh, by Circe that in order to escape this danger, he should put wax in all of his sailors' ears. But Odysseus, a curious one, said, I want to hear this song, but I want you to tie me, you know, to the, to the mass so that I can hear it, but I won't be drawn to it. I won't go to it. And that is one way to avoid temptation, right? You tie yourself down, you stuff your ears with wax, and you just gut it out so that you don't ever go near the tempting thing, and hopefully that will be sufficient. And that's how most of us seek to overcome particular sins. And I think we also realize that a life's a long time to live to try to gut it out till the end, and it rarely works. But you'll notice when Jason and the Argonauts sailed that same way, and they came to the same part uh, of the channel, and the, uh, the sirens begin their singing. It happened to be that on his crew, Orpheus was also part of the, the crew, you know, this great bard and singer, this, this storyteller and prophet, and he began to sing. And his voice was so much more beautiful that no one was tempted to listen to the song of the sirens. Not no one, there was one. Uh, But his song was so much more appealing that the song of the sirens lost its effect on the sailors. It no longer, again, was a temptation. And so you can either tie yourself up and shove wax in your ears, which is sometimes necessary, no doubt, Or you can drown out temptation with a sweeter song, with a more beautiful vision, with something more lovely. And it's that very thing that the Spirit uses to empower you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. You see, hating sin and resisting is good, but it's not enough. Loving Jesus... And embracing him, seeing him as altogether lovely, is absolutely essential 
If we're ever going to have the Spirit's control over our impulses, we need a better love, we need a more powerful source, and this is how we do it. We love Christ more. And we say, well, that's all you have to do. Just love Jesus more. Let's pray. Um, So how do we do that? Well, you have to be where Jesus is. That's where the Spirit has promised that he'll show up to give you what's necessary, to give you the power requisite, to find Jesus where he promises that he'll be found. And he promises that when his word is preached, he will be present in that word, and you will hear his voice. But also, to know that you have such little control over yourself that you're praying beforehand that, you know, on Saturday night, or, you know, hopefully Monday through Saturday, that you're praying, Lord, when I show up to church on Sunday, please make your word effective to me. I have all these other temptations, all these other things I love more. May your spirit work through the word to change my heart. Do you come prepared to hear these things, or is this just something you hope will take its effect? And God's good. Sometimes he does take effect without us preparing at all. But if this is how we know that God works through his word, then we should be seeking his help through those things and praying that God would empower them for our good. He promises to meet us in the sacraments where Christ is both displayed and given, again, for us, that our loves might be drawn to him. He promises to meet us in prayer when we reach out to Him and basically say, I need you. In so many words, you know, there really is only one prayer, you know, Kyrie liaison, you know, Lord, have mercy on me. And then we can fill in the names and fill in the blanks of what that mercy looks like in any given situation, but that is our prayer. We need the Spirit's power. Grant us these things. I mean, when was the last time that Christ was truly beautiful to you. And if you say, I can't remember, then there's the reason that you can't fight temptation. Not because you're not trying hard enough, but because you need to, again, seek Him, find Him, pray that He would again open your heart and show you that the things that you love are so weak in comparison to how good He is. And in that loving of him is all the strength you'll need to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. Let's pray.